This is the part in our service for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from two passages. The first one will be in Matthew, the book of Matthew, verses 15 through 20. And in your pew Bible, that can be found on page 823. After I read from there into the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And I'll give you that page number in your pew Bible is 975. But first we'll read from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now if you would please turn to the book of Galatians, which can be found in your pew Bible on page 975. And we'll be reading through verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 page 975. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in doing, for in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thanks for your word. Thanks for these specific words and what they mean for us now in this season and in this place. I want to pray for those who feel stuck in spots of conflict and interpersonal pain. Would you speak this morning a word of hope to them that you see them, that you want to help them, that you have plans actually to make, make a way for them to move forward and to forgive and to to match the good news of the gospel, both in their hearts and in their actions. And I want to pray for those who are stuck in sin, who feel overwhelmed, or, or maybe it's moved past feeling overwhelmed to just feeling numb. Would you speak a word to them? Would you come and help? Would you get hope, offer a way in their hearts to see you inviting them towards freedom? So would you speak a specific word to those who feel stuck and trapped when it comes to sin? And I think I'm speaking to all of us when I'm in those two categories. All of us need your grace. All of us feel stuck. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, we have been in this text now for about five weeks, or this is the fifth week, and I am committed to having a really quick, succinct introduction. Uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, I have been nuancing the heck out of these things at the beginning, and I know the line between 
nuancing and meandering is pretty thin. One man's nuance and another man's like, uh, come on, dude, get after this, go, we're ready. So I get that. So I want to just jump into the text, but I want to acknowledge if you're first with us this Sunday, this might feel a little abrupt. Uh, normally we nuance for like 12 minutes, um, but that makes the text long and the sermons run long and our kids ministry uh, needs us to have quicker introductions, I believe. So we're going to jump into that. Let me just say this, for this text to be true, two things have to be real. One is that there's a loving God who cares about you. The other one is that sin is devastating and dangerous. For this passage to make any sense at all, there has to be a loving God who wants to show you grace and who has actually come in love and embodied that. And sin must be something so severe that we're warned with these really formal ways of how to engage it as a community. God's a love and the devastating impact of sin. And in fact, I think that is what we see in the context of Matthew 18. You remember as we've kind of walked through that, it's now been several months since we walked through the beginning of Matthew 18, but you see a call to humility. You see a warning for those who would lead somebody else to sin, and it's severe language about having millstones tied around your neck if you were to cause someone else to sin, speaking of the severity of that. We're at the moment of like hopelessness, he goes in in verse 10 to God being the kind of God who is the shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep. And we're not meant to say, yeah, that's good for those people. We're meant to see ourselves as the one lost sheep that God is eager to come for, eager to actually rescue, eager to actually redeem. And then after this section that we just read, we have this long parable of God as this um, owner, this king who forgives debts and wipes away the cost of someone's offense to him, which is a symbol of our own forgiveness. So you see mercy and humility, a warning about the severity of sin, a call to those who are lost and wandering, and then the assurance of a deep, extravagant love and grace. Those things ground us, and they make us the kind of people that can live into a passage like this, people that want to walk humbly, people that want to protect the weak, people that desire to see the lost brought home, People that have a grounding in their own understanding of forgiveness and what they have received, so they're eager to share that with other people. So, so if that's where the text has taken us, I want to talk this morning about what active love looks like. I want to call church discipline active love. It's courageous, it's costly, it's something that's not very common. And in spaces where God has given us his word, I think it is an act of love to move towards us in significant ways to help us be freed from sin. So this is what active love looks like. So I want to talk about what God's design is for active love and then how we should do this active love and then why this is good news. That'll kind of be our guidepost for the morning. So look with me in verse 18. Just remember kind of where we've been. God's design for active love starts with the command to actually go. He says, if then your brother sins against you, right? This is a family. These are fellow humans. These are people who are on the same page as us. If our brothers or sister sins against us, then go. The first thing is actually to move towards them. And he says to go and show them their faults, these things that are actually between the two of you, the things that separate them from God, the things that need to be healed, the things that need to be owned, the things that need to be forgiven. Go and show them their faults between you and him alone. It starts private and informal. So we might want to say as we just kind of begin here, when you think about a passage like this and the what God's design is for his people to actually pursue holiness, you might could think about a two-by-two where one access is a formal and informal line and the other one is a like proactive and reactive or a formative and corrective line. So there are things that are proactive or formative and informal, like you reading your Bible, you, you praying, you being in a a relationship with somebody who you ask regularly, how's your heart, what's going on inside of you? It's, it's informal and it is formative. It's helping you move forward. So that's what Colossians 3.16 says, that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and then we should teach and admonish. We should proactively, formally instruct and then we should admonish, we should warn, we should react to what's broken. So you have informal, proactive, and you have informal, reactive. There's places where it's not just like feeding and nursing way it's responding to pain so you 
you see something happen. You, you get an alert on your phone from an accountability software, and you move towards someone informally still, but in a way that actually is reparative or, or moves towards responding. So you have formative and corrective, proactive and reactive, and you have informal and formal. I'm doing the boxes in the air if you're listening to the audio. And then you have more formal. Right? He goes and starts with this informal kind of responsive thing. There has been a breach. Now go to your brother or sister and actually begin to name it. And the goal there is actually, we've seen in the second step, to win them over. To, to go in such a way that actually the goal is to gain your brother. That's the way the verse ends of verse 15. To go and tell them their fault between you and him alone. Keep the circle tight. Keep it private in informal ways. Only acknowledging the ones who have been involved. And if they listen to you, the goal's been gained. You have won back your brother. So go keep that goal of winning them in mind. And then he says, if that doesn't work in verse 16, that we should grow kind of our response by getting other people involved. So he says, but if it doesn't listen to you, then take one or two others with you that, you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now it becomes a little bit more formal. That's a little bit more reactive. You're moving towards actually, hey, we need to get somebody else to sit down with us. Maybe it's still over a cup of coffee so it feels casual, but, but you're moving towards an increased response to the situation. Again, the goal is to, to win them. So you're not holding court. You're not in a way that you're actually bringing about judgment. You're actually asking them to listen, to open up their heart, to engage. One, one scholar said this, church discipline is not about lords with authority controlling peons or serfs. It's not even about hierarchy in the first instance. It's about brotherhood, about dealing with fellow believers as family members, as people who share the same baptismal name. This language of brother here is family language. This is speaking about the church, speaking about those who you're in relationship with. And he says to go and get other people involved is actually a beautiful thing. Still keeping the circle small. This is not an online post. This is not something where you're blasting things wide. This is something here where you're bringing people that care to help you listen. And we said last week there's kind of four ways that they can help. One is to help you see yourself more clearly, which is about self-awareness. Rarely do we see ourselves and our contribution to the conflict accurately. It's also there to help us see others more clearly. This is about empathy, to kind of see the other side or what might be going on or what their story might be or what might be leading them to this kind of behavior. Having somebody sit down with you and listen and help validate and engage actually helps you see the other person the other person more clearly more like a human and and then three it helps you see God's word more clearly there are tricky things in the scripture that aren't contradictory but they they seem to kind of make this composite sketch of of ideas that are fit one situation that wouldn't fit another so it says like go immediately then we also see warnings about dangerous people to not go to them and so the idea of having the community around brings in kind of awareness and teaching and clarity around God's Word. This is about wisdom. So self-awareness, empathy, wisdom. And then fourthly, to see the gospel more clearly. To see how the forgiveness of Jesus applies to this situation. To have a community of faith that is deep in the Scriptures and understands their own inner kind of receiving of the gospel gives us a context where we can engage in peacemaking and in talking about faults and sins and brokenness in ways that are very, very redemptive. Because God's Word has spoken to us about what to do and what's in bounds and out of bounds, so we're not judging one another. God's Word actually tells us what is true. And because we believe the good news of the Gospel, this extravagant grace of Jesus, this loving God who come to us, because that's on the table of awareness and empathy and wisdom and and the scriptures are just wise to tell us that we're being influenced by lots of voices. Our culture might even at this point tell you not to do that. Who, who are you? That even feels judgmental. Why would you bring other people in? And what's fascinating is our, our culture is happy to blast things facelessly online with no chance of redemption or reconciliation rather than actually engage a text like this that says do the uncomfortable but hopeful work of bringing people in. And because we're a gospel-saturated people, this is not judgment. Again, we're not holding court. We're offering grace and, and wisdom. The goal is that our reflex would be, what do the Scriptures say, and how does the grace of Jesus 
affect this situation. If that's who we are, then gathering two or three of us together to sit down with you and the person that you're frustrated with or there's tension with or there's been sin against gives you a ton of hope. That formative or proactive idea here is to be in God's Word and to be saturated in the Gospel so that we have something beautiful to share. So, so go, keep the goal in mind, get other people involved, and then we've said to grow in our response to the situation, which brings us to where we want to focus today. Verse 17 starts with this idea that if you brought two or three people together and they, they still refuse, then you should bring it to the church. Look in verse 16. If he refuses to listen even to them, these two or three that you brought in that are helping you listen, that are reminding of the Scriptures, then now we're getting severe, we're getting more formal, we're getting in spaces now where we're reacting to situations, trying to help. This has moved from just kind of formatively and teaching and instruction to actually now admonishing. And the idea is to bring it to the community. And then he says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me just finish reading it, and then we'll unpack it. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, the circle broadens, not just past a couple of friends now, to, to bring it to the church. And even seeing that idea here, putting to death the idea that we get to be the individual judges of a person. We're now being asked to bring this thing to the church, to bring it to the leaders of the church, to bring it to the pastors of the church. Maybe you would start with your small group leader, kind of in an informal way, and they would move a little more formally to bring the pastors. Because remember a few weeks ago we talked about God giving us the church as a means of grace to help us know the good news of the gospel and what God requires of us and what it means to walk with him. And so pastors are meant to warn and exhort both with false teaching that we've begun to believe and then false living. And the authority isn't even in the pastors. The authority comes from God and from His Word. And the pastors have authority to the degree that they are reflecting God's Word. So the church is the place that we hear God's Word, the place that kind of holds that understanding of what God says to us, constantly pushing to us, here's what God's Word says, what it means to follow Him, what it means to actually be actively engaged with Him. If that's what the church is supposed to do, then bringing this to the church is to ask in a more formal way for that to be brought to bear on the situation. Hey, this has gotten really dicey, really confusing. This has been going on for a long time. This conflict started back when we were in college. This thing's been going on in ways that we feel really stuck. And then what happens is you sit down with the church and in, in ways that actually are listening, in ways that are trying to understand, and then apply God's word, the church is meant to be a means of grace to help you not just break the tie and figure out who won, but figure out how you apply God's word and what it means to engage the gospel. So it would start with just listening. When you bring it to the church, that would be you and this person, and maybe the other folks that you've involved already, just sitting down and praying listening, asking questions, asking what does God's word say here. There might be encouragement there. There might be warning there. There would be accountability there where the pastors are actually using God's word to say, this is what God has called you to. This is what God's word actually says. And in those spaces, it can be kind of confusing. Again, there's lots of passages, so we would go really slow in ways that actually honor the situation to just stop and slow down and ask that that you listen, that you consider, that you ask what does God's word say, not what is even like your own spidey senses or gut or the culture or your tradition tell you, but what does God's word say. And to the degree the pastors are bringing God's word to bear, you can move forward with confidence. And this is like a discipline when parents just like are frustrated or on a whim or their conveniences have been violated. And the discipline out of frustration like that, how, how dangerous that kind of idea is. But, but when a parent actually is after the child's heart and cares about what's going on inside of them, that, that kind of discipline is actually really helpful. So for a pastor to be rooted in God's word is actually a gift to you, to, to see what actually is inside, to put it next to what God calls us to write. Because following Jesus is not simply about some activities you do. It's about an allegiance to him in ways that actually submit our entire life to him. Remember from, kind of from the context of Matthew, Jesus has been saying, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. And so, so what does it mean to actually die to ourselves? This is what's happening in the conversation. What does it mean to actually engage in these truths and bring these things to bear? And then what would happen is it would move from an informal conversation where we pray and hold up a couple of passages and ask you to consider. If it continued to get 
harder and resistant and you started to stiffen your neck and it began to actually get more ugly and more painful, more people got involved in ways that were causing more damage, then we would move towards an increased response. There would be some things in writing. We would just write down, hey, this is what we see. Would you please consider this? We would sit down like with your small group and try to help them understand what's happening to help bring in kind of some accountability and some prayer to activate the saints. It might even be spaces where we begin to say to you, hey, I'm not sure you're in a safe place. When he says to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector, surely he doesn't mean treat them poorly or just kick them out. What, what he means is call it what it is. Treat them as someone who doesn't actually follow after Yahweh, someone who's not actually following after God. And so in that space we would say, hey, we can no longer like affirm your confession of faith. The way you're living is in contrast to what God's Word We've been talking about for days and weeks and months now. You're living in contrast to that. So it would be foolish to give you confidence that your heart is rightly related to God when, you're, when your behavior seems so opposite to what he's called us to. Remember, Jesus is very realistic. He says you could you know, know a tree by its fruit. This is not just all in our head. This is not just ideas. It actually plays itself out in our regular lives, which is really, really, really good news. It means that transformation is real. It means that holiness is real. It means change is real. And then when there is a lifestyle being lived that says, no, I won't submit to Jesus as king. No, I won't actually follow what he says. No, I won't do what he's calling me to. In that space, then it would be really unloving to just pat somebody on the head and say, good luck. Active love looks like moving towards that person and calling it what it is. So to call someone a, a Gentile or, text or to treat them like that is simply to say, hey, this is what we see. The, the, the kind of list that you're living, the the way that you're actually following after your own desires is one that's not actually rightly related to God. And we would say that for two reasons. One, to remind them, and if they are actually a a daughter or son of God, to call them back, to hold that up. And even that kind of stark language, hey, I'm not even sure if you're a follower of Jesus, isn't meant to be a stab or an insult or to poke them in the eye or determine like who's good and who's bad. It's meant to be a warning. It's meant to be an earnest active form of love to warn and say, hey, I can't square what you're doing with somebody that claims Jesus is their king. And that should actually wake up a real child of God. Hebrews says that God disciplines those that he loves so that he would welcome us back. And then maybe there actually is a situation where that person is not a follower of Jesus. Jesus warns us there's people that grow up around the community of faith. They just kind of come to church as a little kid and they just kind of follow that pattern and they they know all the language but they're not actually rightly related to him we'd look at this in chapter 7 of Matthew so it's possible when we get to a place now where formally it's being said hey you're not living in the light of somebody who actually follows after Jesus the severity of that could be evangelism it could be to call them it could be to welcome them for the very first time not not to correct a child but to call somebody who's not yet a child that has lived kind of in this dazed space of religiosity or an American culture or a church community that added benefits relationally, but there was no actual conversion to stop and say, hey, the way you're living as we've engaged in God's word isn't in keeping with somebody who follows after Jesus. That would be a loving thing to draw them back. So we're not saying who's good and who's bad. We're not saying who's in and who's out just kind of flippantly. What we're saying is God's word calls us to things what you're refusing to do or what you are doing is not in keeping with what God's Word says. So can we just call it what it is? Can we just say what it is? And it's always meant to be a loving thing. In 1 Corinthians 5, we get a, a story of a man who's probably sleeping with his stepmom. And the thing opens up where Paul says, hey, there's something happening in your community that even unbelievers know is out of bounds. And yet you're somehow celebrating it. Shouldn't you actually like, be brokenhearted rather than boast? As if they're like boasting in the progressive nature of their community. We're the kind of community that just welcomes people where they are and they can do whatever they like, whatever makes them happy. That's the kind of community we are. And Paul says, no, no, no. This is clearly out of bounds. Everyone knows this is out of bounds. And so say to that person, this is out of bounds and actually remove them from the church so that they can sense what's happening physically matching what's happening spiritually and then it says so that they may be saved actually turn them over expose what's happening call it what it is so that they might actually return and be saved discipline is always meant to be a loving 
restorative thing, never a punishment and kind of retributive thing. It's always meant to welcome someone back in. But this takes like so much courage. It takes so much confidence in who God is. It takes an active form of love because, friends, this is really hard. Even while I'm talking, you're like, hey, can we get a little nuance here? This is kind of uncomfortable. I I totally get it, right? To be the kind of a community that would say to somebody, hey, this is out of bounds. Remember, this has gone slow. We're using God's word, not our preferences or tradition. We're not using our biases. We're holding up scripture. But in that space, when someone lives outside the bounds of that, it's a loving thing to say, this is what we see. And that's what's going on with this binding and loosing language. To bind is to say, hey, this is restricted. And to loose is to say, this is allowed. We see the same language in chapter 16. And in chapter 16, there's a little footnote there that would tell you the language here could be translated, maybe more preferably translated, not, not that it will be bound or loosed, but, but it already has been bound or loosed. You're just reflecting what God's word says is already in bounds and out of bounds. So when the church says to somebody, hey, the way you're living, what you're doing, your refusal to actually, whether it's forgive or stop slandering or, or engaging in ways that actually are harming you or those around you, if you refuse, then to call it what it is, to just say, hey, this is out of bounds or inbounds, this is bound or loosed, is, is a really loving thing so that they can respond. I realize this is not something that's normal, but I think active love is not very normal. We live in a permissive culture and, and the expressive individualism that has taken root in our day makes us so hesitant, even when we know you can't not know that it's wrong, you're so hesitant to say something, primarily because it will cost you. You'll see, be seen as a bigot, you'll be seen as self-righteous, you'll be seen as judgmental, you'll maybe be called a hypocrite, who, who knows what might happen. And so as you quickly calculate the cost of what active love would bring to you, we're tempted to stop and say, I'm just going to let that go. I don't know, there's probably more to the story I don't really understand anyway. But the idea in the church is that we're in relationship so that we actually have a context to bring things to light because we actually love someone. To let somebody go on sinning in ways that are harming them and their relationships, I would argue, is an act of hatred. That, that like, refusing to engage with them, that, that way of you actually shunning them by not saying something, I don't think it's just kind or patient. I think it actually is an act of hatred. Because God doesn't do that. God calls it what it is. The list that we have are God loving us to say, hey, this is not in keeping with somebody whose heart is mine. So we're trying to live out the gospel, trying to live out the way God loves us. We're trying to love others as we have been loved. And God is the kind of God that says, hey, this will actually bring death to you. This will actually harm you. And so I I love you enough to actually say something about it. So this is really important. The church doesn't get to decide what's in and out of bounds. All the church does is reflect what God has already said is inside and out of bounds. So let me use an illustration, and I realize it's kind of potent for some of our stories, but but think about getting a diagnosis of cancer. The doctor comes to you and tells you what the scan has said. They're not giving you cancer. They're just saying you already have it. For the church to say you're acting like a tax collector or a Gentile, they're not making that true. They're just saying this is what the scan shows. As we hold up God's Word and we we look at it, we're saying this is not in keeping with somebody who's inside a relationship with God. You wouldn't stiffen your neck to His commands like that. Jesus says, why do you say you love me but you don't do what I command? So, So we're not declaring something. We're simply reflecting what God has already declared which means we have to be a people of the book. We're so influenced by our culture. There's so much outrage. There's so many things that are driving how you see the world right now to stop and own the voices that are not in keeping with God's Word because you understand God's Word. It's actually essential for us to be a community that could actually do this well. I see in so many ways my job is to help us be healthy in this teaching, formative, proactive way both informally and formally in ways that we're formally from the pulpit and informally in coffee shops, holding up God's word to say, this is what he's called you to. And it's, it's a way of life. Remember, sin always kind of promises life and it ends in death. It has this allure about it. There's a lie to it, but, but underneath that lie is something that's actually really, really dangerous. And so to love somebody enough to say, hey, this is outside the bounds of what God calls us to, 
um, is a really loving thing. And it will mean that we have to be a kind of community that takes God at his word, that believes redemption is actually possible, that takes sin real serious, that believes God's the kind of God who goes after this one lost sheep. Because it's super hard. You often get misunderstood. It normally ends up messier than it started before it gets better in those spaces. To be willing to risk that says you have to believe God's word and his means of grace to actually love his people. Active love is something that will be beautiful in its restoration, but really costly in its application. Because for us to engage with each other like that, we, we take a lot of risks. I do think it's more loving. And let me just say this. We're talking about persistent, severe, unrepentant sin. We're not talking about a casual mistake that you made that you own. Repentant people aren't disciplined. This is something that like is hardening. Right? All these steps, these informal and formal steps, you're continuing to resist. You're continuing to harden your heart. You're continuing to actually turn your back away from God. In that space, we're not talking about somebody who's struggling. We're not talking about somebody who's being honest in their brokenness. We're talking about somebody who with a high hand says, I will not follow King Jesus problem is they rarely say it that clearly. So the community is tasked with lovingly engaging with them, being the kind of place where the conversation can keep going, where you can actually see people. So we'll have to go really slow for that to happen. And I would say this at times that like it's gone poorly. Normally it's we've waited too long to engage it. We waited too long to actually go to the person. So we let it build And it built in such a way that it got dangerous and people started getting hurt. And then you got angry and frustrated, so then you react really sharply and strongly. The times that I've messed up when it comes to these applications are places where I didn't actively, quickly, in informal ways, go to someone soon enough. I let it build over time to where it came to a boiling point, and then we moved too fast. So too slow on the front end, and then too fast on the other side. And maybe it's like too simplistic, but what if we reverse that? What if we were quick to bring things to people and then really slow on this uh, second part here? We would slow down, we would pray, we would grieve. And because we're dealing with things in seed form, I think actually we get into a space where where we're not actually harming people as we bring things to them. We're bringing it to them in a way they can hear and understand. They know that they're loved. There's a lot of things about our community that need to be true for us to be able to engage this, to, to kind of cultivate a place of grace and forgiveness, a grace of mercy, a grace that treasures, a place that treasures the gospel, that speaks regularly about our own need for grace and our own brokenness. The reason why we unburden every Sunday is because it's normal to need to unburden, to kind of as a formative way to say, hey, don't go past this week stiffening your neck to God. In seed form, would you just stop and bring your heart, confess and unburden Leave it here and go back to following Jesus. We do it regularly because the expectation is our hearts are always struggling. To, to, to believe and trust Jesus in hard spaces can be really difficult. So to stop as a community and say, hey, what are we calling you to is, is a place where we are actively loving people and we'll have to be a kind of community that pursues holiness, that understands the cost of discipleship, that actually engages with Jesus' teachings in, in real ways. As an illustration, we're working on a parenting class for March. And so we want to just have two nights really practical to do, hey, well, how do you kind of disciple your children and how do you discipline your children? It'll be aimed kind of at, at younger kiddos. And in that conversation, we're talking about a book, like, hey, what book could we kind of affirm to people? Not that we would read it to them, but we could just say, hey, here's a trustworthy source. And I was talking to Adrian about kind of books we read when we were raising our children in that, in that young phase. And, and she made the comment about one of the books that I think is really helpful about actively loving your children and being quick to discipline because you love them. Don't let things get overwhelming. Don't actually discipline out of anger. Be, be quick to just name things and deal with it before it grows so you don't exasperate your children. And she made the comment that the author says, he talks about if you've never disciplined your child, it's really hard to begin. So if you just start spanking your child at seven, all of a sudden, that can be maybe even traumatic in that space, right? And so, so to stop and say you have to uh, not wait or, or not just like earn back the right, but he's saying a regularly, consistently live a life that says to a child, hey, you're under authority. So, so is mom and dad. We're under God's authority. And the expectation is that we live under God's authority to make that normal. And when someone goes out of bounds, to make it normal, to be lovingly told that's out of bounds, welcome back into bounds. To make that normal is a, a massive gift to a kid. 
When I heard her say that, I just thought, oh man, to be the kind of church that doesn't just wait until things are really bad, or the, we're at the edge of the marriage melting down, or we're at the edge of addiction, or someone's, someone continues to hurt other people, to be the kind of church that actively, proactively moves towards relationships and treasures Jesus in such ways that we're cultivating hearts of holiness so that it's normal. So that following after Jesus and saying no to myself is normal. To, to make dying to myself something that actually Christ calls us to, we saw in Matthew 16, to make that normative will help us as a community love people like this really well. If we just wait till things are melting down, we're going to be in a pretty bad spot. So sort of proactively move, move towards, right? To cultivate an understanding of God's holiness and the severity of sin. To understand, hey, things actually get, get way worse, which is what Galatians 6 kind of helps us kind of wrap our minds around. As I thought about our specific community, let me just say, like, I know a lot of us are bringing in really complicated stories into this place. Like, that is welcome and that is okay. And I want to invite you to deal with the complicated parts of your story. To actively move towards peacemaking with people that you need to engage with. To, to do it in ways that they go, that keep the goal in mind, that actually kind of get other people involved. To follow these steps is something that we must do as a community. And to the degree that you've experienced here a safe place that has been encouraging and welcoming, would you honor that by going to people in the good news of the gospel and try to be reconciled to them? And if you need help, right, there's steps and provision. But I want to call us, kind of after we've sat down in this text for several weeks, to move towards people in our lives that we need to actually apply this text to. And to go in ways that show grace. And maybe you would even say, I don't have to go if I can just simply forgive them. But if you can't forgive them, to actually move towards them and, and go. The text gives us provision too with somebody who's who's overwhelming or abusive or you've tried and it hasn't gone well, I think there's ways to distance yourself that this text could help us with. And the community of faith here would love to walk with you prayerfully, slowly, with God's word in hand about what you might do to actually love that person. But let's not carry into the new year or into this next season kind of these open fragments that we're not dealing with. Some of them take years to do it, so I'm not saying you've got to hurry up and heal. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, let's not sit on unresolved things because they simply won't get better, which is what Galatians 6 kind of helps us to engage with. So to be the kind of people that can handle this kind of relationship, that can handle this kind of active love, I mean, something has to be true about us. So would you just flip over to Galatians chapter 6? It's on page 975. I brainstormed a ton of different times this week of like what I want us to be and what I think God's Word calls us to. And I found in Galatians 6 a pretty helpful summary of what I think if we engaged with this, it, it would make us the kind of people that could handle this kind of act of love. So Galatians chapter 6, it's on page 975 in your pew Bible, or you can pull it up with your phone. I want to just walk through real quick and answer the question like, what needs to be true about us, or how does the Bible tell us to actually do this? What, what is the, the ethos or the belief or the framework or the culture? Uh, what's the air that we breathe here that would make this kind of act of love, not judgmental, that would make it actually really hopeful, that would let people actually be restored and welcomed in. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. He starts again with brothers. We should just stop and say he's been talking to Christians for quite a while, for several chapters. This is an, another New Testament letter that instructs Christians. It doesn't just start in chapter 6, of course. In chapter 1, he talks about the grace of God that's come to us, forgiveness, and then he tells us to live towards God's glory. In chapter 2, he tells us that, that our lives are not our own. We've been crucified with Christ, and we're no longer our own. We're actually living in response to him. Chapter 5, we get this descriptions of the flesh and the spirit. God's word names what it looks like. So we're not declaring that. We're just holding the scan and saying this is what it looks like to the, seeds, the deeds of the flesh and the, the deeds of the spirit we see in chapter 5. And so with all that in frame, he says, hey, brothers, those, those who are related to God, brothers and sisters, if they're caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. It sounds really familiar to what we read in Matthew 18. Any transgression defines what those transgressions are. And he says, if you are in a spirit of gentleness, again, apparent the times that I've been tempted to discipline out of anger, 
quickly when I held up over time. I wasn't gentle. I moved, I moved fast towards a situation. So, so to stop and actually engage with gentleness, which he describes in chapter 5, is to be quick to bring this to them with the goal of restoration, to actively to love them. And then he calls us to humility. He says, hey, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. The community must understand its own temptation towards sin so we don't become self-righteous. And we don't isolate certain sins over others. He says, he says anyone caught in any transgression. So there's this great leveling that happens in the scriptures. It's not that every sin has exactly the same kinds of consequences in our relationships, but the scriptures say that all sin falls short of God's glory. So all of us are on an equal playing field. My, my struggle might be different than your struggle, but all of us are in spaces where we must keep watch over ourselves to understand the effects of sin in our own heart and to realize that all sin falls short of God's glory. So there's a humility there. And then he's going to say we have to simultaneously bear one another's burdens and also take personal responsibility. In verse 2 he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You're living out the good news of the gospel to love God and love others as you engage with each other and you take the cost of their burden on yourself to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ bore our weight on himself is what he's saying. And then he says, for if anyone thinks that he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That call back to humility. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. So you see now a beautiful, even if it may be complicated or confusing, exhortation simultaneously to personal responsibility. There is no transformation without personal responsibility. I get so like overwhelmed with people who, in their moment of struggle, they bash their community for not asking them hard enough questions. And they'll say, I got here because my community didn't call me enough or they didn't say enough to me. They didn't ask me the right kind of hard They didn't ask me the right kinds of accountability questions. When that happens, the person is moving away from personal responsibility towards blame. You won't be transformed if you traffic in blame. And blame quickly leads to shame and pride and all kinds of other messes. So there's a call to personal responsibility, believing that God actually wants to change and transform you. And a call to the community to love someone, to, to be the kind of community that's willing to bear burdens as someone bears their own load. Hey, that's huge for us, family, to be a place where we do both where we're gracious and we're kind and we're sacrificial, but we don't move towards enablement because we actually call it what it is and say, no, that's out of bounds. That's yours to carry. You have to engage that. Even in the fruits of the Spirit, like self-control is one of those. To stop and say, hey, you've got to own this. And we're not saying you've got to be by yourself. We're not isolating you. We're saying we want to bear this with you, but we can't bear it more than you. The times you find yourself in a relationship fighting harder for their relationship than they are, you know you're in a really, really bad spot. So the community, again, this is like proactive, a desire ongoing before me in the moment of crisis to have a regular pattern of engaging my own heart, taking responsibility for my actions and my own transformation so that I can actually pursue Jesus with my whole heart. And I realize I need people. I need people around me. That's hard to do. We live in a really broken world, and so to have a relationship of those around both personal responsibility and a loving community are, are essential. And then he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. There's a lot there about how you should love and honor your pastors. We'll talk about that another day. But I just want you to notice here about the word, being taught the word. The, the word is the thing. The word is the thing, not my preferences, not our denomination, not our traditions, not our culture, not our Americanism, not your political agenda. Those things are not discipline worthy. God's word and his holy word telling his people what it means to actually follow him, that's what we're trying to hold up, right? To, to engage with the word. The word is the standard. And again, all we're doing is saying, hey, the word says this. And you're saying you won't do that. So you tell me, what do we do there? What do we do with that kind of space? And they might say, well, it's complicated because other passages say this, right? This is why we're slowing down. We're pulling community and we're getting wisdom from the word and applying the gospel. But we come back to the word. That will save us from being a cult. It'll save us from being like judgmental because the word has in it warnings of our own sin and a, a beautiful description of the grace of God that's extravagant to welcome the one who's wandering back. That, that's part of the word as well. So you're sitting down with somebody, not just saying you need to change, but saying, oh, God loves you. God died for you. 
God, God made a way for you to be forgiven and set free. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hold on to this. You don't have to pursue this road of death. To actually have all of the word, which is a large story of God's redemption, to hold all of that up, not just case studies or one little simple command, but put those commands in context. It's a massive thing for our community to be a people of the word and of the gospel will make us able to deal with the things that come up in our relationships. It will make us able to actually actively love one another. So, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then he says, this is that warning about sin, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will they also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from that Spirit reap eternal life. This is the idea that sin doesn't stay put. It's dangerous. It doesn't stay in the seed form. As you cherish it, it begins to grow. And don't be deceived. God's not mocked. There's no consequences right now. Though you didn't get caught, as you indulge that, it will grow. There's a warning here about the severity of sin. And even the way he uses the, the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit to speak of them in seed form that grow. And there's like baby forms of slander and baby forms of anger and baby forms of sexual immorality and baby forms of rivalry. And those spaces to be the kind of community that names those lovingly so they can be uprooted. To see the warning in a text like that. To be a people that take sin real serious. Take sin as serious as we take God serious. And to see the need to actually engage that to be a holy people. He just names, hey, this thing won't stay put. It's the way that like a parent who, it's kind of cute to video your kid who's like totally rebelling against you and saying all kinds of things. And so like when a kid like throws the middle finger to his parents and they video it and then post it and everybody laughs, like you've seen those things, right? Maybe, maybe you've seen those. Okay, that's cute. It's not going to stay there. It's not going to stay in a little quotable post, a little meme. It's actually going to grow, right? If you don't parent that kid, that thing actually grows past a cute Instagrammable thing to something that actually harms them and your relationship. Silly illustration, but just stop and say, hey, we want to be the kind of people that deal with things early and often so that they don't grow. And then he says, hey, this is hard in verse 9. Let's just be aware. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. Both in our personal holiness and in a community that's striving after being a kind of loving place don't give up. It's hard. Don't grow weary. And then he says, there's something about the church that's unique in verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. There's something about the faith community here that he kind of grounds this in to say, hey, the church is meant to be a means of grace for you to engage in these things, to help you see yourself, to help you see other people, to help you see God's word, to help you see the good news of the gospel. I would love us to just kind of sit in a passage like that, ask God to make us that kind of people. It gives enough like robust texture for us to not just make simple applications to hard things. It will give us like stamina to engage for the long haul. It will make us aware of what's on the line to actively love people, but so we can be the kind of community that moves towards people with active love. These things will need to be true. And to the degree that you're going like, man, I don't even know. This feels really hard. This feels unloving. This feels really judgmental. Just stop and consider what the consequences or the alternatives are. To not be a community that names things for what they are. To let people just go down roads where they hurt themselves and others. To not be a people that looks to God's word and says, this is what God says. How are you squaring your life with that? To not be a community that holds up the good news of the gospel and hope for transformation. Like, where will that lead us? The scriptures say it plants a different kind of seed that, that bears things in the flesh that actually bring about some kind of destruction. In that space for us to be a people that believe God's word, see as means of grace as good news, so we actively love each other, I think is what he's calling us to. It will take us a long time, even as a little family illustration, to be the kind of family that does this regularly and naturally in ways that are helpful. We'll make a lot of mistakes, but the grace of Jesus will help us actually engage those mistakes We can even repent for the ways we try to help somebody else repent. We can engage in that kind of way because the good news of the gospel grounds us and gives us a lot of hope. So let me just kind of land it there. Why is this good news? It's good news because there's a God who's loving. And there's a good news that he came where there was a severity of sin and took a penalty upon himself to give us hope. 
We started with these two things that have to be true. Let's end with those two things. And at the cross is where we see the two things loudly. God is a God of love, and sin is very, very serious. And God's solution was to come in his flesh, die our death on a cross to make a way for us to be forgiven and set free so that we can move towards him in redemption. That, that is the good news of the gospel. And that frames how we relate to each other, again, offering hope and transformation so people can actually be restored and healed and rescued. To actively love people the way God has actually loved us is what he calls the church to represent, which I think is really good news, even as it's hard to engage. Would you bow with me and close your eyes for just a moment as we get ready to take communion? I'm sure you have lots going on. Just bring all the tension to Jesus. Ask for him to help you. And ask for him to help ground all the tension in the good news of what we're about to celebrate in communion, that Christ died in our place and took the penalty for our sin to make a way for us to be forgiven and free. It shows us his love and it shows us the severity of why we needed his love. I want to ask Christians as you come to communion, would you just bring with you those two truths and celebrate that Christ solved your biggest problem and made a way for you to be forgiven and free and made a way for us to be a family that could actually pattern after this love. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's some prayers in the back of the bulletin that will give you some examples. Communion's for those who are trusting Christ for their forgiveness. If that's not where you are, so thankful you're here. Just stay in your seat and pray. And then after the service, if you want to talk, I'll be up here at the front. I would love to discuss with you what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're in a space where you're stuck, and I'm describing a pattern about a community that you need to apply to you right now, I'll be here. Let's talk. It's a place where you can actually be seen and loved because of what we're about to celebrate. The sacrifice of Christ is our hope. So let me pray for us, and we'll take communion, and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you're like. Would you help us actually engage with you in this moment to celebrate your sacrifice on our behalf? This is a heavy word. It's heavy in so many ways as we think about failures in the past, things that we wish would have happened, things that we wish would not have happened. So would you come now and speak over those a better word through your blood and give us hope as a community to engage radically, courageously, sacrificially with each other the way you engage with us. So nourish us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.